Hey everybody, thank you very much for tuning in. As we are moseying through the book of Matthew, we are on Matthew 18 today, uh, which means we have, if we continue doing one chapter a week, we've got 10 weeks left. Uh, until we get to the end of Matthew, Matthew 28. So for those who uh, haven't been with me on this journey thus far of the previous 18 uh, chapters, which I think we've done 24, 25 um, different videos for these. My name's Dave. I am a Bible student. Uh, I am not a pastor or a, a, a priest or a minister or uh, anything along those lines. I am a Bible student. I am... Um, a evangelical Christian. I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, and I believe in uh, his holy word. And I want to study it and learn more about it, which is why I'm doing this study, is that it's forcing me to dig in deep, and uh, you guys are joining for the journey. So thank you very much. I hope that you get something out of it. So before we open up uh, our Bibles to Matthew 18, why don't you bow your heads and pray with me. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for wanting us to um, have a relationship with you and, and wanting us to uh, uh, keep it simple and be like children. And I pray, Lord, that you will um, soften all of our hearts and speak to us today. Uh, teach us all something new. I love you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Speak through me. Proud this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to be looking at Matthew 18. And Matthew 18, we see a few different things in it, but they all have um, one similar subject matter, and that is talking about the kingdom of heaven as it relates to being childlike. And I'll explain and we'll get into it. Um, but before we get into that, I wanted to play this quick little video to get you in the mindset of the perspective of what we're talking about when we talk about a childlike faith. Kids are hilarious and awesome, and I absolutely love them. I've got 11 nieces and nephews myself, and uh, this past holiday season has been really hard because we usually get to spend time with them, but uh, we obviously weren't able to travel, uh, and they're, they're not close enough that we could visit with them. So um, this video is a video that uh, I put together years ago for a local church, um, and I, I've cut out just some snippets of interviewing kids and asking him the question of how big is God's love uh, as other elements. So enjoy this for just a minute. My favorite Bible story is when God fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. I like when the flood comes and God tells Noah to build an ark. Uh, I like uh, peacocks. Because he's Jesus! Like a seven story, or like a ten, uh, ten story building. 1,000 miles. Ah, uh, gigantic. No, like God's love is um, the biggest. Probably as big as a T-Rex. Uh, as big as the, as big as the world, I can't really do that. Can't really make my arms hug around the world. 1,300. Who's bigger, daddy or God? Mommy. 
John 3.16 said, So God who loved the world, that he gave us the only begotten Son, that whoever believed in him will never die, but have eternal life. Luke 6.31, Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Psalm, Psalm 111.9, He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Psalm 111.9. I don't have kids myself, but I, I love hearing stories of the things that kids say. And I loved filming that video because uh, some of the stuff that just came out of their mouths, it's so innocent. It's so innocent and pure. And that's what I love about kids. And that's what we're going to see when, uh, when we get into this, is that um, Jesus calls us to have the same honesty, um, purity, that, that little kids have. I'm not talking about like fifth, sixth graders, junior high kids. No, no, they've lost the honesty and, and that cute element. I'm talking about little tiny kids that are just now starting to be able to talk that uh, take everything that you say at your word. Um, kids struggle with sarcasm. They don't understand sarcasm. Uh, then, then there's that age where all of a sudden they start to figure out that, oh, you're joking or you're actually not telling the truth to me right now. They believe what they hear. And that's one of the things that we're called to, to be as a child in that, in that regards. Kids are also very humble. Um, little kids know their place. They know that they, they can't take on the world. They, they don't have pride yet. Pride hasn't set in. They, they are just ecstatic for the moment. That's the other thing that I love about kids is they truly live for the moment. I miss the days in which winter break, like you started your Christmas break and it lasted forever. It didn't matter. It, there was no concept of time. Same thing with summer break. I honestly thought that summer was half the year. Um, and, and like you wake up in the morning and you have no concept of um, even worrying about the problems at the end of the day. You are so, as a kid, living in the moment for the here and now. And I think God calls us to live that way as well. Um, so let's dig in and we're going to look at this. I'm going to jump around just a little bit, um, but why don't you open up your Bibles uh, to Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So when you read Matthew's take on this, where he, the, the disciples simply say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That question is an interesting one, and it begs like, okay, in the kingdom of heaven, who's the greatest? Well, obviously, you'd have Jesus, uh, and you can go through and you can kind of answer that. You can go through and think about it from that perspective. Is okay, if you have a kingdom and a hierarchy of royalty, who's at the top and how does it go down? But as we've talked about before, um, we have other testimonies, right? So you have uh, Luke and Mark also have this same uh question asked in their gospels. And from those, we learn that actually what's happening here is the disciples aren't asking in the kingdom of God, in the hierarchy of God, who is the most important? No, they actually are, they're fighting amongst themselves about of the 12, who's the most important? And actually when you look at uh, Mark's take on it, um, 
they're kind of, they're, they're quiet about it because they know that they've been put in their spot, so to speak. So uh, those two different takes, you can do Mark 9.33 or Luke 9.46 are the two different uh, takes on it to get a little bit more of insight on it. So they're not asking this holy question of in the kingdom of God, who is the most important? They literally are, are, it's sibling rivalry. They're fighting about who is the most important. And likely this is happening because just in the previous verse, we saw Jesus take um, Peter, James, and John and go uh, up to the mountaintop in which you had uh, the trans transfiguration. And so no doubt there's some, some rivalry. You also see Peter called the rock. Um, over and over you see Jesus kind of uh, treat Peter um, a little bit higher than, than the rest of the group as far as putting a little bit more pressure on him. Now it might have been because he's also um, a bit outgoing, more outgoing than the others. I don't know, I haven't met any of them, uh, and I, I'm excited to meet them one day, and, and I would love to be able to go back and see some of these scenes to, to really learn who the different characters are. Um, but there was a pecking order, so to speak, and when those disciples came back, I do believe that there was some unrest about who was most important, and they were bickering. And you can see Jesus was talking about that in his response. So let's pick up the response. He called a little child to him, and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So what's Jesus saying here? So there's a couple different things to note. First of all, um, Jesus loved kids. And uh, we see this several times in the Bible where kids would literally run up to him. And that is a huge indicator. That's a huge indicator of a character of a person. Uh, is Will kids run up to them? Um, kids are have a good judge of character, really young kids. And you can kind of tell when kids are hesitant about a person, but the Bible talks about the fact that they ran up and gave them hugs. And we see in uh, Mark, Mark 10, 13, um, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and blessed them. So as we talk about kids, uh, I want you to talk, throughout the, the rest of 18, um, there's three different um, ways we're going to talk about children. So you have children in the physical sense, young kids, um, which Jesus does pull an actual child up in front of the group to use as, as an actual example. But then there's two other uh, types of children that we're gonna see. One type of children uh, that I want you to consider is a new believer. And this is from the perspective of the old believer. And you can get into, um, I don't wanna say a rut, but if you are a Christian of 20, 30, 40 years, 
you have your faith and your faith has become very routine and you know what you know. And many Christians that have been a Christian for that long uh, can sometimes be a little stale and a little dry and a little dogmatic and a little hard-hearted. Uh, you can get used to your way of seeing things and your interpretation of things, and it is what it is. This is how we do it. This is how we've always done it. Boom. Then you have the new believer, and the new believer comes in all on fire and just excited about everything and sharing new things that, that they've learned with an, an enthusiasm. And what can happen is that that believer that uh, has been a Christian for a long time can look down on the new believer. It's very similar to the prodigal son in which the prodigal son returns and the father is so ecstatic that the lost child has returned that he fattens the calf or slaughters the fattened calf, uh, puts a ring on the returned son's finger and there's bitterness in the heart of the sibling that never left because well, why isn't dad treating me this way? I never did anything wrong. And in that same way, you can have a new believer that's on fire for God. So that, that is one perspective of a child. And, and Jesus will talk about that, and you'll see that. You'll see that as one of the types of a new believer, a childlike, um, a child in their faith. The other is that old Christian who takes on a childlike faith. Now, I don't, whether old or new, Jesus is gonna tell all of us that we need to have a childlike faith. And this is a person who believes in God, but softens their heart and takes on the characteristics, the good characteristics of a child, in the sense of being humble, meek, very quick to listen and to believe what you hear. Um, and that's what we're called to do. So those are the three different types of children I want you to picture in your mind, is that you have literally a little kid, then you have a new believer, brand new believer, and then you have a childlike faith, which is any believer who is taking on the faith in Christ the way we're called to. Okay, so we've gotten like three lines into this. Uh, no, two lines. Um, so let's keep going. I'm gonna pick it up again and read again um, from Matthew 18, 2. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is actually talking about that third. Um, even though these guys are new believers, they need to take on the characteristics of a child is what Jesus is saying. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child, meek, humble, uh, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And we're gonna see this in subsequent verses um, in which Jesus will say that um, the greatest will be last and the last will be first. Those who are first will be last and those who are last will be first. Uh, and that if you truly wanna be an amazing leader, you need to humble yourself and be the lowest of the low. Continuing on, uh, verse six. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. <laughs> That's great. Uh, good, good picture image there. But, okay, so we see, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, 
I believe that what he's talking about here is literally children, uh, but also we're talking about the new believers as well as um, somebody who is has a childlike faith. And we have to be careful of that, is, is that this question about um, what we say to kids and how we treat them does have a very strong impact on them. Um, and this example of a millstone. So we learn actually when you look at uh, Luke's take on this, um, you, actually, excuse me, it's Mark's. In Mark, you see that uh, this is taking place in Capernaum. And they actually did an archaeological dig of Capernaum, of the ancient city, and they found tons and tons of millstones. And millstones are those gigantic stones that they would roll over grain to crush it into flour. And so in Capernaum, they actually do believe, archaeologists, archaeologists believe that Capernaum actually was um, where they had a millstone factory. And factory is a loose term, but they, they had a quarry where they would actually turn these big, gigantic rocks into millstones. So no doubt when Jesus is um, telling this, teaching this, talking to this group, there's likely millstones all over the place. And he's literally talking about these several ton stones. And he's saying that, that if you are one who causes one of these little ones or a new believer to go astray, it would be better for you to have this tied around your neck and for you to be tossed into the sea than for you to cause a little one to stumble. Continuing on, verse 7, Woe to the world because of things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. And again, that's the same idea, is, is that um, you got to be careful. Don't cause your brother or your sister to stumble. Be very conscious of everything that you're doing. And we, we are called to live, uh, to be conscious of those who are around us. But specifically, Jesus is talking about being careful about what you do um, and the kids, and because kids are constantly watching. For you parents, you have a lot of pressure. So continuing on, um, and this is a new chunk that we're getting into uh, at verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. This is all one thought, but it's the same idea, is that uh, we're called to take extremes. This is not a literal thing. Jesus is not saying that you're supposed to cut off your hands or your feet, but he is saying that you are supposed to take extreme measures. So for yourself personally, if something causes you to sin, take extreme measures. For me personally, um, this was several years ago, but uh, I found myself um, on the road to becoming an alcoholic. I had a bar downstairs in my basement that had um, well over 30 high-end bottles, um, more than that, um, that were, were in the bar, and I found myself having two drinks a day, if not three sometimes, and it seemed like um, as soon as I had a rough day, the, the solution was having a drink. And I had enough, and I tried. I tried to just stop cold turkey, um, but having that alcohol in the home was too much of a stumbling block for me. So I pour it all down the drain. 
there was a handful of very high-end scotch that I did give to a friend who's a scotch lover that uh, um, he was grateful for the gift. And, but all the rest of it, I did dump down the drain. That was an extreme thing I needed to do. And I needed to feel the cost, the hundreds and hundreds of dollars that I just poured down the drain. Um, and that was an extreme thing. In hindsight, it really wasn't that extreme, but it worked. It totally worked. And now we have a rule in my house that we don't have any alcohol in the house lest what we're going to consume. In fact, uh, just yesterday, the holidays are over and we did have a bottle of bourbon in the house for the holidays. And uh, I dumped the remainder of it out because the holidays were over and it's time to continue on. And, and I don't wanna be tempted uh, at the end of today. If I have a rough day, I don't wanna be tempted by going home and, and having a drink and then another drink and then another drink and then suddenly the bottle's gone. So for me personally, the way I combat that challenge that I face is just to not have it in the house. And that's a personal reflection for me. But what if you struggle with um, uh, addiction to TV? Um, there's so much that's on there, whether it's television or Netflix or um, Amazon, you know, that, what if you watch hours upon hours of television every single day and, and you find it constantly pulling you in the wrong direction? There is a lot of very, very bad stuff that's out there. An extreme thing to do, unplug the television. Throw the television away. It'd be far better for you to throw the TV away than to not be able to grow closer to God. Take extreme measures. I don't think you need to go so far as to cutting off a hand or a foot, but uh, I, I think that if, if that does keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God, from getting into heaven, and from strengthening your walk, something to consider. There's lots of extreme things that you can do. Be smart about it, pray about it, but that's what Jesus is saying, is to take extreme measures, to make sure that you don't cause um, a stumbling block uh, or, or to uh, cause uh, one of these little ones to go astray. Because this is also one thought, is, is that if you are doing something that's causing one of the little ones to go astray, and alcohol might be it, um, pornography very likely could be it, um, whatever it might be, it's time to take some extreme measures. So the question is, what is in your life that has been plaguing you for so long that you're still just dabbling in that you need to take an extreme measure? Something to think about. Continuing on, the parable of the wandering sheep. Verse 10. See that you, not, that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. This is actually where you get the idea of a guardian angel, uh, specifically for kids, is that Jesus says, uh, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. And this is also when we see that, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. I think that that's actually talking specifically about a new believer. And let's continue on verse 12. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and, the one, and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hill and go to look for one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. I heard a pastor tell a great story that I'm gonna share with you about um, in Ireland, um, about these sheep that would go up into the, the steep hills uh, in Ireland and in the mountain section, in the, in the mountain territory. Um, 
and they would fall down in these crevasses and they would get trapped. And what the sheep herders would do um, is not go and rescue the sheep right away from, from the, the crevasse or wherever they fell down. They might be on the edge of a cliff um, and they won't go and rescue them. Why? Because what will happen is, is that if they do rescue them, that sheep very likely will go and do the exact same thing again. We'll jump right down to that same hole, that same situation. So what the sheep herder will do, uh, the shepherd will watch and wait until the sheep gives up, until that sheep is so starved that it's getting close to death, but still alive, but it gives up. It absolutely gives up and, and cannot survive on its own. At that point, the shepherd will um, lower down a lasso and loop the sheep, pull it up, and then bring it all the way back to the farm, nurture it back to health. And at that point, the sheep will um, change its ways because it was nearly on death and it will remember that experience. And I'm probably not doing that story justice, but the analogy is still the same for us today. You may be on a very low low and maybe you are at this very, very low point and you need to be at this low point to realize how low you've gotten, how bad things have gone, to realize that you do need Jesus and that you do need to uh, repent from your ways and to come back. But in this analogy of talking about the not despising the little one, the little one is that lost sheep in this story, is that one who comes back, who, who maybe is that brand new believer, um, or is the person who has lived a horrible, horrible life and repents and is born again. And we, being the 99 who never left the flock, we need to be careful not to despise the little one that returns. Continuing on, verse 15. If your brother or your sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Basically, the idea there is just a sinner. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth, you will bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by me, by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. So what's going on here? This whole section from 15 uh, through 20, we see a very word-for-word -word description of how we as Christians, as believers, are supposed to uh, resolve conflict. And this works. This completely does work. If you have a problem with a person, believer or not, actually, I would say, if you have a problem with somebody, take it directly to them one-on-one -on -one, and say, hey, I think we got a problem here. Let's talk about this. It'll solve your problem. Very, very likely it'll solve a pro your problem. If you, if you have some situation in your gut right now that you're thinking about where somebody has something against you, and it might be justified that they have something against you, I challenge you right now, call them up. Send them a text message. Call them up. Say, hey, this is heavy on my heart. Can we talk? 
that's the hardest part, more so than anything else. That's the hardest part is to simply say, hey, can we talk about this? This is heavy on my heart, can we talk? And as soon as you do that, for me personally, whenever I have that situation, as soon as I say, okay, let's talk, and we actually sit down and talk, you'll realize that it's not nearly as bad as you had in your mind. And that's what Jesus is painting the picture here. So let's say that you try that first one and the person won't listen to you. You do go one-on-one -on -one and talk to them and they will not have it. So then you go to that next step, which is you take some witnesses. Now this is where you have a group intervention in which you have that conversation of saying, hey, this is the situation. You are doing this and you need to stop. This is where you do this. And an intervention is a perfect example of this. Then you have the third example, which is where you bring it to the church. Now this obviously um, is only applicable um, if the person you have the issue with is, is in your circle, is in your church. And I do think that, that there are a lot of issues that should be solved by bringing it to your pastor and having a um, small council meeting, basically, of um, the church, the, the pastor, perhaps an elder or two, to present the situation, to present the story, and then have the elders of that church uh, make a decision about what should be done. There are so many things that could be done and could be solved, so many court cases, so many lawsuits that could be solved out of court uh, without litigation, if we would simply follow this system. Uh, it's an important one to follow, and I think that uh, many churches do follow this, which I think is great, but many don't. Many people, especially Americans, we as, as a people group are so fast to uh, immediately jump to a lawsuit and to sue a person for, um, well, you, you caused me harm, you wronged me. Uh, and I deserve uh, retribution for, for how I was wronged. Just talk to them. Just, I mean, that's what Jesus is saying, is just talk to them. Just talk to them. So continuing on, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Jesus isn't saying that you need to count each time that somebody wrongs you and then the 78th time, give it to them, take them to court, 78 times. No, Jesus is saying not seven, but seven times seven is that it just an infinite number. Always forgive. Let's continue on. Jesus replied, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, 
he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had the mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured till he should pay back what he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. So how many times should you forgive your brother or sister? Well, how many times have you been forgiven? How many times have you sinned? How many times have you done something even small that deserves justice and you were given forgiveness instead? Well, that's how many times you're called to forgive as well. And just to make this analogy, this story, um, uh, to paint the picture accurately, um, 10,000 bags of gold was a humongous amount of money, uh, an amount that, that a person could never hope to gain in their lifetime. It's, a, it's, it's more than a lifetime's worth of debt. And then uh, the several um, hundred silver coins is microscopic in comparison. And that is, is the debt we owe. You know, a lot of people will say and believe that, um, well, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. And that's the analogy that we're looking at here. Is asking this question. Okay, so if we're going to look at uh, good deeds outweighing your bad deeds, uh, how much do you owe? Uh, the analogy that I've heard that I like is um, trying to jump to Hawaii and that you could take your best possible leap, but it's impossible. You can't jump to Hawaii from California, the coast of California. You can't, it's impossible. It's impossible to be done. It's the same idea here is that this debt, the debt that this uh, servant had to pay was an impossible debt. It's the same thing as, as us, as mankind. We owe a debt. We are fallen. We are broken. And in order to be in God's presence, we have to pay that debt. And the, the cost of that debt is death and judgment and, and etc. But Christ paid that debt for us so that we can be one with God, that we can be united. And that's the debt that was paid for us. The master is God. We are the servant that had a lifetime worth of debt that was paid. And then here on earth, amongst your fellow servants, someone owes you a few hundred bucks and you take him to court over it. That's the analogy here, is, is that we turn amongst ourselves and refuse to forgive our fellow servant uh, a small little tiny debt when God forgave you this massive debt and you are unwilling to forgive your fellow man for this small little thing. So how is God gonna be willing to forgive you when you can't forgive someone else? And that's the point that, that, that Jesus is saying here is, is that you need to forgive not seven times, but 77 times, an indefinite amount of times you need to forgive if you want God to be able to, to be willing to forgive you. And that's the life that we are called to live. So as we wrap it up here, the question is, do you have a childlike heart? Or are you an old, grouchy, stingy, hardened heart Christian? that is firm and set in your way? Uh, or do you still have a childlike, humble perspective? Do you understand your place in knowing that you are not God and that God is God? 
Be still and know that I am God. Is that Psalm 43, I think? I don't remember. I could be wrong. I think it is Psalm 43. Be still and know that I am God. I know it's in the Psalms. I don't remember exactly where. It might be Psalm 4-3. I don't remember. But that's how we're called to be. We're supposed to be humble. Like little kids, like those little tiny kids that, that read the Bible and believe it and know God and believe in God and have that faith of a childlike heart. Why don't you bow your heads with me? Lord, I pray that you will humble me and give me a childlike heart. And that each person that is listening to this, that, that we would take on that childlike perspective that you call us to have and to be like children and, and to listen to you as a little tiny kid does to their parent who is instructing them. Lord, I pray that I would have a childlike heart when it comes to following you and to my faith in you that I'd believe wholeheartedly and that, that my concept of time would be so focused on you that uh, you engulf uh, my perspective and that no matter how many um, small little burdens I have that seem to overwhelm me, I'll have the perspective of a child in realizing that you are everything. I love you, Lord. Thank you. Please grow your relationship with each person that's listening to this and help each of them to, to have that childlike heart. And to the old believer, the old Christian, I pray that you will soften their heart and you'll give them that renewing uh, of the, the faith that they had when they were a brand new believer. And to that brand new believer, uh, I pray that you will give them a steadfastness, Lord, um, and that you'll fuel that hunger even further. I love you, Lord. Proud this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Um, next week, we're going to be looking at marriage, that dream within a dream, to quote from, uh, the, um, what is that, uh, uh, The Princess Bride, marriage. Uh, specifically, it's wrapped around divorce, but we do uh, get some phenomenal uh, scriptures on marriage. We'll also look at uh, the, the rich young ruler, um, as we continue on to Matthew 19. So have a phenomenal week, and uh, we'll see you next time.